Turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew 17. This week, I've had the privilege of being with the anchored singer, the, the anchored seniors, the anchored seniors, tried to say the anchored singers, <coughs> or anchored sinners, <laughs> the anchored, <laughs> the anchored seniors on a trip to Washington and New York, and we had an unusual time, 2,200 miles, and a blessing of being in some very important places in American history. I'll tell you more about it later, but I appreciate the honor and privilege of being with these men. And uh, having the experiences that, we're, that we had together there. <clears throat> I might say you read in the paper about Mr. Natcher receiving that honor and recognition and award because he has participated in more votes than any other congressman in history. We were in his office that day. He told us all about it. And then we went to the House of Representatives and were there when those votes were cast and he received, he uh, had the opportunity of casting the, the largest number of votes any congressman has ever cast. And I think that's an honor to Kentucky that we have a, a man from this region representing us in the National Congress who has in all of these years never missed one vote. That says something. We had the privilege of being with him. He's a very personable man, made time for us, and just sat, sat down and spent time with us in his office. I'll tell you about that later. But let's turn to Matthew chapter 17. And we begin reading with verse 14. Matthew chapter 17, beginning with verse 14. And when they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is epileptic and greatly vexed, for often he falleth into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and he departed out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour. Then came the disciples to Jesus privately and said, Why could not we cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief, for verily I say unto you, If ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Move from here to yonder place, and it shall move. And nothing shall be impossible unto you. Howbeit, this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. May we pray together, please. 
Our Father, we thank Thee for the wonderful Word of God. We pray Thou wilt open its pages and its truths to us today as we humble ourselves in Thy presence. We pray that the Holy Spirit will do His work of conviction and someone who has never been saved will come to know Christ and God's people will be encouraged. Thou wouldst grant to us belief, faith that could remove mountains. We pray in the name of Jesus and for His glory. Amen. You recognize this as that which occurred immediately when the disciples came down from the Mount of Transfiguration. This story is so important it is told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Jesus took His disciples, Peter, James, and John, up to the Mount. I believe it was Mount Hermon. Many believe it was Mount Tabor. And while they were there, the Lord Jesus was transfigured before them. That is, He was transfigured into His glorious, glorified body, which they were not yet to see until after the crucifixion. But for a moment, they beheld His glory. And there appeared on that Mount of Transfiguration Moses and Elijah. And they talked to the Lord about his death at Jerusalem for the sins of the world. He was transfigured before them. The disciples recognized Moses and Elijah. They were in shining glory. And then the scene passed. And Peter in his impulsiveness said, Lord, it's good that we were here. This is really great. I've never seen anything like this before. Lord, let's build three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And let's just stay here a while. That's sort of like we are when we have a great spiritual experience. We'd like to just stay there. And of course, Peter, in both, both his impulsiveness and I think his innocence, said, Lord, this is so good. Let's just build three tabernacles. And he did not realize what he was saying. And the Lord had to rebuke Peter. Because you see, Peter was making some mistakes. Among them, Peter was equating Moses and Elijah with Jesus. You can never do that. Jesus is in a class all by himself. Sometimes we read about the great teachers and they list Socrates and Plato and Buddha and Jesus, and I resent that. Jesus cannot be placed with the great teachers of this world, even though he was a teacher and a magnificent teacher. He was God incarnate in human flesh. That could never be said about Socrates. That could never be said about Plato. That can never be said about Buddha. That can never be said about Mohammed. That can never be said about Moses or Elijah. Jesus in a class all by himself. And secondly, Peter momentarily forgot what the work was all about. He said, let's just stay here and worship. Brethren, we have met to worship and adore the Lord our God. 
but the greatest worship services we could ever have in this earth were meant to be momentary. They were meant to be for a little while, to give us strength and authority and power to go and do the work that God meant for us to do. We come in to worship. We go out to serve. Of course, in a very real sense, this is a service, but it is a worship service where we come together to proclaim and declare the greatness and the glory and the honor of God, our Father. But in a little while, after the singing, after the preaching, after the invitation, after we sing to God be the glory, great things He hath done, we must go out where the people are to do the work of the church, to do the work that Christ has commissioned us to do. And Peter said, Lord, let's just stay here a little while and build these tabernacles. We like it here. I've been in some great experiences of worship. And I, like Peter, have said, Lord, I'd just like to stay here. But I hear the rebuke of the Lord. Out there, there's a need. Out there, the people. And Jesus said to Peter, we cannot stay here there's a need down in the valley. And so after a little while, they left that beautiful pinnacle. They left that place of adoration and worship and transfiguration and glory, and they came down where the people are. And down here in the valley, there'd been a terrible thing going on. There was a man who knew that if he could just get his son in touch with Jesus, the son would be cured. What faith that was. It was like that woman who said, if I could just touch the hem of his garment. Like the woman Bob sang about a little while ago, just to touch him. And then the man said, if I could just get my son in contact with Jesus, he would be all right. He's an epileptic. He falls. He tears himself. He's in a pitiable condition. They couldn't find Jesus because Jesus was up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. But they found the nine, the other nine disciples. And they came, he came to him and he brought his epileptic son and he said, said, Sir, would you just heal this man? Would you touch him? Would you cast the demon out of him? There was a terrible demon in the man. The disciples tried, but they failed. This is one of the saddest stories in the Bible to me. They failed. Have you ever failed? Have you ever tried to do something in the name of Jesus and you failed? Have you ever gone soul winning and you tried to win somebody to Christ and you just failed? Have you ever set goals to accomplish and those goals seem to fail? And they just laughed at you and mocked at you. These disciples failed. They were miserable. There's hardly anything that will cause a Christian more distress, a sincere Christian more distress than spiritual failure. Have you ever decided, I'm going to accomplish certain things in the name of the Lord, and you failed? 
talked to a man the other day who said, I've tried my best to quit cigarettes. He said, I've quit 25 times, which infers he started back 25 times. He said, I can't do it. I've talked to people who have had spiritual defeats in their lives. Simon Peter was one of those. Lord, everybody may deny you. Everybody may run away, but I'll never do that. I'll stand here even if I die. And the Lord said, Peter, the cock will not crow until you have denied me three times. But listen, Peter, I have prayed for thee that thy strength fail not, that thy faith fail not. And when you are converted, go strengthen your brother. I'm looking to the faces of the folks this morning in this auditorium and speaking to those by radio who have had faith failures in your lives. These disciples had faith failures. I don't think it was that they did not want to cure that epileptic. I don't think that it was they thought it was impossible. They'd seen Jesus do all kinds of things. And these same disciples had been out there under the commission of the Lord when he sent out his 70. And they had cast demons out. They came back and said, Lord, we saw Satan cast down from heaven. But somehow they failed here. They just failed. And then Jesus came. And the man came to Jesus. Listen. If only the people can get beyond us to Jesus, everything will be all right. If we just pray, Lord, don't let me, don't let our, our, our organizations, don't let the church itself get in the way of people coming to Jesus. And they sought Jesus, and they found him. And they came and said, oh, sir, Have mercy on my son. I brought him to thy disciples and they could not cure him. And then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. I, I think the Lord was speaking to both the man and the disciples. He was rebuking both of them. He was saying, dear man, if you could believe, it wouldn't even be necessary for me to be here. You see, there was a time when a man came to Jesus and said, Jesus, I'm not even worthy for you to go be under my roof. You just speak the word and my son will be well. You don't even have to see him. And Jesus spoke the word and he was healed. And the Lord was saying to that man, if you had faith and just believe, your son can be well. But he was also speaking to his faithless disciples and he said, how long can I be with you? How long shall I forbear? How long can I put up with this unbelief on your part? It was a hard remonstration. And then Jesus looked at the man, and the scripture says, He rebuked the demon, and the demon departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Now listen to this. The crux of it is verse 19. Then came the disciples of Jesus privately and said, Why could not we cast him out? Lord, why'd we fail? Lord, why'd we fail? And Jesus said unto them, and in this next section, I want to divide into three sections, three divisions. 
I think he gave them three answers. Jesus said unto them, first, because of your unbelief. Now, the disciples in that day had this problem with the demon. The demon had torn the man. He'd caused him to be an epileptic. He'd caused him to be an epileptic. This was a big problem, and the disciples failed when they tried to cure the man. You and I have big, big problems facing us. Sometimes problems that are insurmountable. We live in an age of insurmountable problems. I read this week about the artificial intelligence movement. It's a new factor of humanism. And it is so subtle, it has crept into all of our institutions of higher learning. And it has been accepted even among Christian circles. Here are its basic tenets. Man is entirely a material being. All of his experiences and activities can be exhaustively explained in terms of neutral networks. Number two, since man is purely a material being, he can, in principle, be duplicated and even surpassed by computer scientists who are constructing even more complex robots rabbits and computer systems. Number three, this makes the concept of a soul and a creator superfluous. Since according to artificial intelligence movements, it has been proven that man is merely a complex computer. The prestige of this movement is derived in part from these facts. Number one, science is the most powerful intellectual force of the century. And the artificial intelligence pioneers have used science to lend legitimacy to their claims. The work in artificial intelligence is being carried on in the most prestigious, prestigious universities in America and all the main technical schools such as MIT. Most of the major science journals have accepted the premise of the secular artificial intelligence researchers. At the time when Darwin first presented his theory of evolution, it was not resisted by any of the major Christian thinkers of his time. As a result, it became the dominant ideology of that century. If the artificial intelligent movement's claims and assumptions are not effectively combated by the leaders of our time, Christian and non-Christian, they will have the same devastating effects on Christian thought as the Darwinian theory did. If Christianity is to remain a force in the future, young people must be trained by top biblical thinkers to incorporate the claims of Christ in business, medicine, communication, law, and other professions. Now what am I saying? Well, this is a big problem today. It is a problem that is thoroughly imbuing itself into all the, as the facets of our thinking America. How are we going to deal with this? We have a lot of other big problems. Abortion, with 
millions and millions of little babies being murdered before they're ever born. And some may say, well, that's not so bad. The biggest problem with it at all, it is being used as a contraceptive measure. How ridiculous. It is used as a birth control measure. God says, thou shalt not. And free-thinking America, even among Christians, has said, God really doesn't know how to deal with 20th century Americans. We are free thinkers. We have free morality. We'll do whatever we want to do. And we have such improved methods that if a little baby should result, we can get rid of the little baby. God says, thou shalt not kill. That's a sin. Now, how are we going to deal with that? Huge, gigantic problem. As we drove to Washington and New York and drove down Broadway and saw the literally millions of people everywhere, bumper-to-bumper traffic for miles and miles from 42nd Street to the Hudson Bay. And many of them, if not most of them, unbelievers. How does one break through any spiritual problem like this? We passed Fulton Street. And anybody with spiritual intuition who has read anything about the spiritual history of America knows the importance of Fulton Street. It was there that Jeremiah Lamphere went one day and prayed by himself for revival. A few days later, there were some more that joined him. And after a while, there were hundreds and the thousands, and that little prayer meeting broke into the great spiritual awakening right there on Fulton Street in New York, just a few, a stone's throw from where we were passing by. And I thought, God, we're in trouble in America. What can we do about it? Like those disciples, they were in trouble. They had failed. And we who have the wonderful Word of God and an open church policy in America and open radio and open television, we have failed. And the television media in some instances has been perverted even with Christians making it nothing more than a little bit of Hollywood entertainment and their lives stinking to high heaven. Lord, we fail. What shall we do? The Iranian arms and hostage crisis. The nation's capital, Washington, D.C., continues to be riddled by corruption, perversion, hedonism, pride, racial strife, drugs, the occult, Islam, Eastern religions. One of the greatest and most beautiful new temples in the world has been built in Washington, a new Mormon temple. Pornography, unilateral disarmament, voluntary prayer in the schools, banned, farm problems, farm problems, so that our farmers scarcely make enough to make it profitable to go back and produce and keep on producing. Homosexuality, bestiality, 
child molestation. And the church, filled with bickering, bitterness, ill will, envy, jealousy, criticism, discord, strife, intellectual slobs and snobs. Now the problem those disciples had was they couldn't cure this epileptic. The problem we have, we can't cure America's ills. We can scarcely cure the ills of the church. And the disciples came running to the Lord and said, Lord, why could we not cure him? What is the problem? And Jesus put his finger on three areas, I believe. Number one, he says, because of your unbelief. Because of your unbelief. That didn't mean these disciples were not saved. They knew the Lord. They were on their way to heaven. It didn't mean he was saying you have not had saving faith. He was saying to believing Christians, your unbelief is the problem. He's saying to Christians in 20th century America, your unbelief is the problem. Not that you don't have enough faith to get you to heaven, but you don't have enough faith to bring heaven to earth. Unbelief. The Bible says that Abraham believed God. God said, you're going to have a son. And Abraham said, thank you, Lord, I'm going to have a son. He told everybody, I'm going to have a son. He was 40 years old, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years old. He told everybody, I'm going to have a son. They laughed at him. You going to have a son? Sure, I'm going to have a son. How do you know, you old fuddy-duddy, you old grandpa? You're too old to have a son. Well, we're going to have a son. Sarah and I are going to have a son. God said so. I believe him. And the Bible says that that belief was counted to him for righteousness. Now, I do not mean to sound ludicrous, and you let the Holy Spirit apply this to your mind, but just suppose Abraham had not believed God. God said, you're going to have a son. Would God have overcome his unbelief and given to Abraham and Sarah a son had Abraham not believed God? Had they not come together in that holy, beautiful union in old age, believing God, would God give them a son? Well, he could have. But much of the scriptural injunction is that he wouldn't have. Because God waits on our belief, our understanding, our obedience, which is involved in belief. Abraham believed God. Gideon went up with 3,000 men to take a city, and God said, wait a minute, Gideon, that's too many, way too many. Here's what I want you to do, Gideon. You go down here and have them all drink some water. I'll show you which ones you can take. He said, everybody that gets down here and laps like a dog, put them aside on one side. He said, everybody gets down here and gets the water like this, you put them over here. 300 of them did that. And 2,700 did the other way. And God said, Gideon, you take these 300 and I'll win the battle. Now just suppose Gideon hadn't believed God. He said, well, Lord, I need those 2,700 to go with me along with these 300. God said, Gideon, you shut up. Just believe me. 
And Gideon believed God. I think that's what Jesus is talking about. Because of your unbelief. Peter believed Jesus at Pentecost. He said, get up and preach. 3,000 people got saved. Have you believed God to go out and storm the strongholds of Satan in Jesus' name, risking being laughed at and accused? You see, Peter and John were arrested and beaten and thrown in prison. They got right back out, got back out on the street and began doing it all over again. One of our big reasons for not believing God is we're scared. We're scared to honor him. We're scared to go through the doors. We're scared to put ourselves out on the limb because we do not really believe God. We can be a lot more popular if we don't believe him. The Pope told Savonarola to be quiet. Savonarola said, no, I've got to obey God. And he went on preaching. He put him out of the church. They burned him at the stake. But the blood of the martyrs has been the seed of the church. Because of your unbelief, it is 11 days' journey from Horeb by the way of the sea to Kadesh Barnea and to the Promised Land. Israel came up out of Egypt. In 11 days, they could have been in the Promised Land. God said, I have arranged for you the milk of, land of milk and honey. You can go in and possess it. They came to Kadesh Barnea and were afraid. And they had faith failure. It was their unbelief that caused them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, day after day, night after night after night, until all that generation died in the wilderness. Unbelief. Jesus said, because of your unbelief, you could not do this. Because of your unbelief, O church of Jesus Christ, in the middle of the 20th century, the last part of the 20th century in America, it is your unbelief that has caused rampant sin to be on the march. And the work of God to be in trouble. I could go on and on with illustrations, but let me give this move to the second point quickly. Jesus said, not only because of your unbelief, but because of your unyieldedness to the word of God and prayer. Prayer is the mightiest force in the universe. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Praying and Bible reading go hand in hand. It is impossible to stay prayed up without being read up. It is impossible to have some kind of sentimental prayer life that neglects the Word of God and just as impossible to read the Word with power and efficacy without prayer. I think Jesus was pointing his finger to this when he said, This kind cometh not out but by prayer. Prayer. Disciples, you must pray. Believe God and pray. Pray is hard work. It means concentration. Most of you are familiar with Frank Lubbock's experience and uh, experimentation about prayer. His position was that prayer, and he's the man that fostered the great learning centers, helping Ill illiterates become literate by reading. Frank Lubbock said prayer is energy. 
That's the reason it hurts so, it's so costly. That's the reason it's difficult. He said it's energy. He illustrated this by saying Jesus sweat as it were great drops of blood. The energy, the intense energy of prayer. He used to go in New York City and get on the transportation, the subways and the elevators and so on, elevated trains. And he'd get on and sit some particular position and he'd find a person in there and begin praying for that person. Never knew him before, never known anything about him. And he would just pray and focus all of his concentrated energy on that person in prayer. And he said, invariably, without a single exception, before that ride on that public transportation was over, the man or woman for whom he was praying would get up and look around and concentrate his eyes on Frank Lubbock. He said there's a transference of energy that brings that one to its source. Prayer is hard work. This kind cometh not out but by prayer. Because of your unbelief, because of your unyieldedness in this matter of prayer and the Word of God going together. Here at Glendale Baptist Church, we face some very, very difficult obstacles. Things that would make me want to get down my knees in prayer and humility and embarrassment for God and say, oh God, surely you did not plan for our church to go Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and see no precious soul come to Christ. No dear precious one come into the baptismal waters and say, I believe in the Lord Christ as my Savior. This kind cometh not out but by prayer, by belief, and thirdly, this kind cometh not out but by prayer and fasting. I think this has to do with your unconcerned intensity. What in the world is that, preacher? Your unconcerned intensity. Well, I think it is possible to have a false intensity. Intensity can be put on or it can be real. For example, Jim, come up here just a minute. Let's pretend like I'm in the choir. Stand over there. Oh, way over there for you. Look right at me. Yeah. Now, Brother Jim's leading our choir. And I'm supposed to watch him. If I don't watch him, the mistakes that I make may be mine. If I watch him, the mistakes are his. <laughs> but I watch him. Now I can watch him with real intensity and follow every move he makes and be right clay in his hands and he can hold a note out in here, I just hold it. Or I can have a fake watching. I can look at him, but it's not real and not even observe what he's doing. Thank you, Brother Jim. Now, I think sometimes in our Christian walk, we have a fake intensity. We go through all the measures of looking to Christ. The casual observer would think he's really faithful. He's there every time the church door opens, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. When they kneel to pray, he kneels to pray. 
When the offering plate is passed, he puts his offering in. When they stand to sing, he sings. But his heart is not in it. It is a false intensity. It is not real. Jesus put his finger on it in Isaiah 58 when he said, Cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet, and show my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. As a nation that did righteousness and forsook not the ordinances of their God, they ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. Why have we fasted, say they, and thou seest not? Why have we afflicted our soul, and thou takest no knowledge? Behold, in the day of your fast, ye find pleasure and exact all your labors. Behold, ye fast for strife and debate and to smite with the fist of wickedness. Ye shall not fast as ye do this day to make your voice to be heard on high. Is it such a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Wilt thou call this a fast and an acceptable day of the Lord? Is not this the fast that I have chosen? Listen to this. To undo the heavy burdens, to loose the bands of wickedness, to let the oppressed go free, that ye break every yoke. Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, and that thou bring the poor that are cast off to thy house? When thou seest the naked, that thou coverest him, that thou hidest not thyself from thine own flesh. And on and on he goes. In other words, he's saying, you can fast, and incidentally, fasting is not just the doing without water and bread and bodily appetites. Fasting has to do with the heart, the intensity of the heart toward God, toward the things of God. It means getting rid of wickedness out of our lives. It means repenting of sin. It means an intensity toward the Lord that goes with a great burden. Noah Cook was taken in death this past week. I loved Noah. Sometimes I pestered Noah. Many of you in this room knew him. Over 20 years, I witnessed to that dear man. Longer than that, nearly 30 years. I was one of the first men I met when I came to Bowling Green. I remember when he and dear Hallie met. Hallie is a member of our church. I used to go to see Noah at the burger basket and down on the street and over at his house and everywhere. I prayed for him. I pled with him to receive Christ. Sometimes he'd be a little indignant. He was always nice. But sometimes I could tell that he was a little impatient with me for presenting the claims of Christ again and again and again and again. I'm saying to you it would have been simple for me to just forget him, but I couldn't. When God puts someone on your heart, you may want to forget. You may try to forget, but you can't. It is there. I prayed for him. One day, about a year and a half ago, maybe two years, I went by his house. It was in the evening. I said, Noah, neither one of us is going to live forever. I've chased you for the Lord for 20 years. I want to see you saved. I could see a, a different expression on Noah's face. 
I explained again from the Bible the same thing, the same thing that I'd said to him scores of times through the years. But it was different that night. The Holy Spirit was working in his heart. We got down on our knees by his hassock in his house. And he cried unto the Lord and asked Jesus to come in and save him. Oh, how grateful. A few days ago in the hospital, he said, Preacher, since I got saved in my home that day, so sorry I waited so long. He said, I've not been well enough to come to church or to be baptized. But he said, I'm trusting in Jesus. God reached down and took him the other day. I'm sorry I could not be here.